Hey, John, uh, this guy, Robert Pandya, I, I'm not so sure about, you know, how appropriate it is for us to be creating a podcast around somebody who has a website called motogiveashit.com. What's going on? No, what? motogiveashift. What? Shift. Like uh, like you're shifting. Oh, I thought it was motogiveashit. I'm sorry, buddy. I, well, I, Mark, the, <laughs> the, the other funny thing is one of my favorite things about this podcast is he, he refers to you as systemically lazy. No, no, no. He wasn't referring to me. If he he was, I'm calling him back. Dial him back up. Welcome to the Behind the Bars podcast, where we discuss all things motorcycles, memories, and mayhem. This is awesome. Sponsored by Wilkins Harley-Davidson. Let's get this thing started. Here's John and Mark. On the line with us is Robert Pandiet out of Georgetown, Texas. He is the owner of Spokespeople LLC, which is an agency dedicated to motorcycling and cool stuff with throttles. Um, but also, really exciting, the former PR manager for Aprilia, Motoguzi, Victory, and then most recently, Indian Motorcycle. Uh, he's currently hosting a motorcycle industry panel and a conversation at um, a website. Um, which is just www.moto give a shift. That's with an F. Yeah, shift.com. Shift. Yeah, moto give a shift. Shift. Yeah. shift. Yes, Mark. Got it. And consulting with a couple companies that we currently can't talk about, but I'm sure down the road he will. Why can't we talk about them? Well, we'll ask him. Robert, welcome. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. How you guys doing? We're awesome. Well, you know, uh, this is exciting. You've got a really broad perspective on a lot of different things. Um, so happy to have you on the show. I know you're a busy guy. You were uh, just on the news recently. Probably you were getting interviewed. Uh, were, were you being interviewed on CNN over the topic of the Harley's new products, or what, what were you getting interviewed about? Yeah, I've actually gotten in touch with, um, or a few different news organizations got in touch to talk about the changes with uh, Harley-Davidson in particular, their recent announcement, I think is one of the more exciting announcements in motorcycling, uh, certainly in the last 25 years, I'd say, um, and uh, and is the sort of thing that is going to uh, cause ripples throughout the entire motorcycle industry, and I would challenge any anybody who feels like they're really connected with motorcycling who who doesn't get that this is a big deal to just, uh, you know, hand in your enthusiast card because this is about as, uh, as big as it's going to get. Uh, and as I said, I think it's really going to be a forebearer of, of change for the industry, which is um, really desperately needed, as, as, as we talk about in our uh, Moto Give-A-Shift website. So, Robert, you, you talk about ripples. What do you mean? What, 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 what ripples is this going to create? I mean, we got, we got a dual sport. We got a custom bike. We got an electric motorcycle. Uh, we we got a, um, um, a a sport bike. I mean, what ripples? We, we, people have been doing that. Deal, motor manufacturers have been doing that. Right. Well, the challenge is uh, that um, people look at products as just the product, right? So somebody sees Harley Davidson Street Fighter. And arguably, on that, we'll just pick on that particular motorcycle. You could wipe the logo off the gas tank, and you could stick, you know, Yamaha on there, and you could stick Victory on there, and you could stick uh, Can-Am on there. And and because it's such a new thing uh, for Harley Davidson, uh, it's 
challenge for people to imagine that bike. So just seeing that Harley logo on a bike that is progressive and modern uh, in that sense is, is going to be a challenge. So the ripples actually don't come from just the product-level conversation. The ripples come when you move up into a brand and categorical uh, conversation here, and that's really what's important. Uh, motorcycling has been relatively flat since the last financial crisis in 2008 and 9 and I mean there's a massive amount of people who are buying things now that have no reference for that they you know they weren't in uh, in retail spaces back then they're too young but uh, but that um, recovery that has happened on the stock exchange that has happened in housing markets that has happened in commercial development and business and that sort of thing is not reflective in the sales of new model motorcycles. They've been relatively flat since then. So that's something that's really scary when you elevate up above just what the nuts and bolts of the bike is going to look like, but what does the industry look like? What does the category look like? So the ripples come from the fact that here is one of the most recognizable American brands all over the world, let alone a brand within motorcycling, that for the first time in, in living memory is projecting new products years ahead of when they're going to be available. They never do that. No, they don't. Uh, they don't. And so they're saying to the industry, not just to consumers, they're saying to the industry, we're changing and um, the rest of the industry is going to, ha- is going to just have to keep up. Because if all of a sudden one of the, the, the oldest continuously running brand of motorcycles um, introduces a new line of bikes and introduces a new mentality for motorcycling. Along with a timeline. Along with some of those designs. They're still gonna they're gonna still gonna build the you know, the boulevard bikes and the touring that's never gonna change. I mean that's always gonna be in there. So this is this is an in addition. So think I would I think of this more as like Honda adding Acura that kind of thing, that under, the, you know, uh, it, it may be the same brand name on both sides, but when you think of what an Acura is, it, it has a different feel from what you think of a Honda is. So this is uh, a chance uh, for the rest of the industry to learn by what the big dogs are going to do, and honestly, if if brands like, uh, you know, Indian and um, uh, uh, Yamaha and Honda and Suzuki, Can-Am, and that sort of thing, if they don't keep up, um, it's, uh, it's, it's their lack of innovation is going to be uh, really sticking out in the light of Harley making such a sweeping uh, addition to their lineup. So, so Robert, if I'm hearing you correctly, you know, John asked you, well, what's the difference between Harley Davidson announcing all of these new progressive changes um, and the fact that those changes have been existing in our in our industries for years? Are you saying that it's it's the fact that Harley Davidson specifically is now stepping up and, and and introducing these progressive models that that may in fact elevate all of the other boats in this water? I mean, is 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 there is their perspective that dominant in the industry? Their their uh, power in the industry is that dominant. Okay. Um, the uh, and I've said for years that's a great analogy that a rising tide raises all ships. Right? We want uh, more people to be influenced by uh, by motorcycling. Harley themselves point out that less than three percent of 
the American population rides motorcycles. Okay, um, to put that in perspective, it's three percent of the American public uh, population that enlist in the military, and only one percent that sees combat. Okay, so there's there, that's how rare it is to be a motorcyclist, right? So going from three to four percent, the twenty-five percent increase, uh, uh, and we've got to uh, we've got to understand that the, the small numbers that we're working with. Are, are critical and so therefore when the largest brand uh, with the most retail spaces as you drive down the highway you're going to pass more Harley Davidson dealerships than you will Honda and Yamaha and Can-Am and so on and so forth um, that their influence on the retail market is substantial and uh, this is an announcement to me that's very similar to Ford saying oh we're only going to make trucks and it and we're going to have a couple of cars, and we're getting we're getting out of the car market, and that that's a that's a huge announcement for a company like uh, like Ford, and uh, and the rest of the industry is going to reflect their position against the dominant brands, and all of a sudden a company like Ducati that didn't necessarily see a Harley Davidson as a competitor from a product standpoint. When you look at a Ducati Street Fighter and now this new Harley-Davidson Street Fighter, and then you look at it from a consumer's perspective of where am I going to get it, uh, you know, where's the excitement in the market, where am I going to get it serviced, what, you know, what sort of organizational uh, uh, community aspect do they have. Harley-Davidson just can, can really uh, lean on their own history and heritage uh, of delivering that sort of thing. But they have to do it in a way that's truly authentic to their own brand and is real to the prospective customer. Otherwise, you end up just looking like a, you know, it's like just dumping a whole bunch of money into something that nobody really wants. Honda is famous for doing that on, on you know, uh, on techno- technologically driven motorcycles in the so, past. So, Robert, why... You know why? Why did Harley Davidson come out with this? You know, the, like for instance, the Street Fighter model, so far in advance. I mean, they're talking, you know, a couple three years out before we're going to even see this model. Why disclose that to its competitors? Because you're turning a big ship, and uh, you know, when it comes to Harley and the naked sport bike segment, that's a small rudder on a big ship, right? So it takes a long time for that thing to turn. So when you're talking about the brand of Harley Davidson, uh, Harley Davidson as a brand has not done anything fundamentally exciting outside of their core audience for a long time. There was a chance with Buell, and and uh, it, you know, full disclosure, I used to run Buell Track Day events uh, along with a, a couple of partners, and. Um, uh, and those motorcycles were unique, but the management structure at that time did not understand the Buell customer, and the dealers literally crapped on the Buell brand within the Harley shop. You'd walk into a Harley-Davidson shop, and you'd be lucky to find one guy wearing a Buell shirt, uh, and if you asked where the Buells were, I could check them out. They were typically in the dusty corner in the back, and they were treated like, uh, you know, like the, the runt of the litter. Hmm. And um, so it's... Uh, it's a new attitude from a management standpoint. Status quo clearly doesn't work. And here's management saying that we're going to have a fundamental change two to three years out, which is going to have a ripple down effect within their own organization, 
where everybody who's involved with Harley understands that if they don't get their crap together, they're probably not going to be working with that brand for a little while. Or they're going to be relegated to the existing, you know, Fat Bob, CBO, you know, uh, Street Glide world. Meanwhile, here's this new division that's creating uh, uh, excitement and has, has committed to bringing new riders into motorcycling. And if Harley does a good job of bringing new riders into motorcycling, even if every other brand doesn't change anything, that's only good for our industry. So... Robert, if I'm a CEO sitting at my desk at one of the metric motorcycle brands, am I excited or am I frightened by Harley-Davidson's change? Uh, You mentioned that, of course, it elevates the industry, but don't you think that some of those metric brands are now like, wow, we've got a new competitor in our side of the market. Is that scary or is that overall a good thing for everybody? I would say it depends on how close they are to retirement. <laughs> yeah, well said. They're, you know, if they're right on the edge and not giving a crap anymore, then they're just going to potentially could waffle along and and say, oh, yeah. You can, I mean, you can rest on your laurels, right? And that's a, that's a big mistake to, to make is to not take a brand like this seriously because they've got massive investor uh, relations out there. Um, it's an it's icon of uh, American transportation. And if any uh, CEO or product planner or marketing guy or whatever is going to have a wait-and-see attitude, rather than leaning in and starting to do smart work, then they're going to see the end of their career in two to three years as, uh, as this stuff starts to come out. It's really incumbent on uh, management within motorcycling, and I don't care what brand you know is on your shirt, to uh, begin to truly listen to enthusiasts from all levels, uh, young riders, moms and pops, uh, and uh, um, in the entrenched um, category evangelists, you have got to listen to enthusiasts because that's the language that propels motorcycling. It's not just specifications. If it was just making an interesting trinket, uh, there's dozens of companies that can do that, have tried to do that, and have not necessarily succeeded. Um, you know, this is a uh, inherently unstable device. You know, if it wasn't for the guy who invented a kickstand, that I'll be laying on their side. So. so, Robert, what, in your opinion, what, what, what would you say is the, out of the custom, the uh, Pan America, the Live Wire, um, the um, uh, what model did I miss, Mark? Well, the electric bikes. Yeah, well, I said that live wire. Yeah, but the super small ones. The the, the custom bike, mm-hmm. the Street Fighter, excuse me, yeah. and then the Pan America. Which one is standing out that has the most, um, you know, potential? Well, you got to put that up against the time scale, okay? Um, and so if you're asking me which one is going to, you know, be one of the more exciting things in the next, sort of three to four years. Um, the Pan America is, is interesting. The ADV category is blowing up really fast. Um, anybody who's been, I have a, I have a KTM adventure bike, which I love. Uh, I know a ton of people with BMWs, um, GS series. And um, that sense of adventure and exploration is exactly what Harley-Davidson leans on with their touring bikes. So that's not a new emotion for them. Um, 
the path by which you will explore that is going to go from being highways and, and two lanes to being more gravel roads. That's pretty exciting. Uh, when, you, when you ask global motorcycle riders, particularly people from Europe, where they want to ride in America, they want to ride out in the desert. They want to ride out in the middle of nowhere because in Europe there is no middle of nowhere. There's population everywhere. And so um, that sense of, of adventure and epic open space is uh, one thing that uh, the American motorcycle scene is, is uniquely attached to. Uh, so that's in the short term. I think the single most exciting thing I saw in the video stuff that they put out, uh, so the video, I'm sure you guys watched that. Um, A dozen times at least. Right, yeah, just to get the little snippets, right? Well, the to snippets me, and it's just The single most exciting thing that speaks to the entire motorcycle industry is that little blonde girl riding the Strider bicycle with the, with the Harley Davidson. Yeah, isn't that, wasn't that cool? That, that right there, if, if they're making a commitment to getting more kids onto two wheels, which is what I, I did a podcast with uh, uh, Ryan McFarland, who's the, uh, the guy who started Strider. Yeah, Strider, yep. The Moto Give a Shit. So, yeah, so Ryan, incredibly smart guy, invented that product basically so he could ride with his kid when he noticed that kids were going into soccer camp and they're doing all this stuff at a younger and younger and younger age. I'm 51. When I got my bicycle, that was like my key to freedom. And I didn't start doing group stuff like baseball or whatever until I was like, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, something like that. Now kids are doing group group activities at, at 4, 5, 6, or, you know, going into karate and doing whatever, right? And and so that, that gap now used to be filled by a bicycle, and that's how you would get around. With bicycle, the bicycle market being down 21%, as Ryan says, that is a fundamental effect on the number of potential motorcyclists out there. So to me, from a, a long-term perspective, the, the, the kiddo on the Strider bike, number one. Number two is the, the clear array of approachable electric, um, I don't know, electric cycles, let's call them that, um, that, that they showed on the drawing board because that, you know, I own a zero dual sport bike. Uh, and I was the PR manager for Victory when, when Victory bought Bramo and brought out the Impulse TT. The, the approachability of an electric motorcycle or an electric cycle or an uh, electric um, boosted bicycle is phenomenal. Uh, and uh, in a little town, I live in a small town, Georgetown, Texas, you can't really get over 45 miles an hour except on a couple of major roads around here. So a, a small electric runabout on two wheels is an answer to massive, massive chunks of the population around America, let alone around the world. Robert, to your, to your point, um, as I was watching the video, of course, I saw the familiar themes like freedom and adventure and exploration. But what I also detected was something new, uh, and that was that potentially Harley-Davidson may be positioning itself uh, in a utility sense. You know, when I think about our motorcycles and, and the message that we're always driving, it's about freedom and, and, and that experience. But most of the countries in the world that have vast populations of motorcycle riders, those riders are riding those bikes because they represent utility to them. They're an inexpensive mean of, means of transportation. And I wonder what your thoughts are do you think that Harley-Davidson is entertaining uh, that aspect? Um, certainly they are internationally, but are they doing it domestically as well? 
Well, the utility market for motorcycles in the U.S. is is really changed since the '60s, you know, and uh, and it's a generational thing. Um, Gen X parents were the first la- first latchkey kids, and divorce rates went up, and then. You know, mom and dad said, listen, when you get home, here's the key to the house. Go inside, make yourself a sandwich, and you can play Atari all day long. So it's not shocking that those parents raised millennials and, you know, and a thing with a screen is a pacifier, right? That's not shocking at all. And then the, um, uh, so there, there's a big, a big shift in, uh, in our attitude towards safety and our attitude towards uh, the risk-reward relationship, uh, you know, and that kind of thing. So the utility of motorcycles has never, or it has been a waning thing in America. Uh, there's going to be an interesting crossover where we have more autonomous cars out there, and uh, and we know statistically that, that most two-vehicle accidents involving a motorcycle are the fault of a car turning left in front of a motorcycle. In theory, these uh, autonomous vehicles are going to be better at that than um, than human-driven counterparts. So, in theory, the accident rate should go down. Uh, and motorcycling, uh, if the industry were to get their act together and were to have a single, like a pinging frequency that I could wear, like a GoPro that was sending out a signal that informed all the autonomous vehicles in the area that here I am on my motorcycle, um, uh, that as that technology comes around, uh, motorcycling or two-wheel conveyance, whether it's electric or gas, can become more attractive. So I think you're right in the sense of uh, Harley seeing an opportunity for an increased utility market. Um, The difference is is that Harley-Davidson is always going to be a premium brand, and um, the things that make uh, a two-wheeled conveyance approachable um, are, are not really patentable in that way. Like, if you could come up with, uh, you know, an electric motor with a belt drive directly to the rear wheel, you're not, there's no patent on that. It's such a common, obvious thing that is, you can't do that. So that's the reason, to me at least, I don't know this from any inside information, but that's the reason why Harley-Davidson would invest in Alta versus Zero, because Alta has a unit engine with a gearbox built into it and makes a unique noise compared to the Zero, which is just simply a, you know, a electric motor with a belt drive to the rear wheel, which is not unique. It's not particularly patentable. So that's a whole bunch of different ideas, but I think that the utility market for motorcycling, it has that potential, but we have to get over a significant hurdle um, in terms of consumer education on why you want to go ahead and choose that, to, to use that as a tool versus uh, versus just being on the, uh, you know, the Uber autonomous driving pod application or so, whatever it will be. So, Robert, you, you just said something that was very interesting to me that I had not heard elsewhere are you suggesting that harley uh acquired a a an interest in alta because the sound of the motorcycle or the motor is is potentially um able to to be patented i don't know that the sound you know we can go back to the old potato potato joke from back in the days i don't know that the sound can be uh uh, patented, but I do believe uh, I know firmly that when they d- 
did the uh, prototype rollout of the uh, live wire, uh, that particular uh, configuration has like a 90 degree uh, turn in the uh, drive line, and so you end up getting a, a gear mesh sound. Any of us who's watched rally racing, you know, and you hear that the sound of straight cut gears, you know, and, and, and that's like a very performancey kind of sound. And, uh, and so they said when they introduced the live wire that that, that sort of turbine sound um, is a unique uh, uh, thing that they wanted to capture. So here's Alta that's got, you know, their particular engine or motor configuration um, that uses a gearbox that has advantages in terms of how you would want to re-gear that internally for, say, a cruiser versus an electric, you know, a commuter bicycle versus an aggressive street fighter. Um, uh, that is something that, that is more patentable uh, and, uh, and something that's more ownable by them. And, and being a huge company, they're not going to put an investment into, into something that somebody else can go like, oh, that's obvious, I'm just going to... So when you saw the video, Robert, the and the video that we were referencing earlier is is for our listeners is the uh, video that that came out on uh, the 30th, I believe, which was uh, Monday. Um, that basically was Harley Davidson sort of announcing its uh, next several years of products or segments, I should say. Did you see anything that stuck out on the live wire to you that was different than previous live wire? Uh, that you had seen? Not really. I, I think a lot of that footage was probably from that prototype era. I mean, the one thing that's telling is like, you know, the, the, A, the live wire is ripping around on a racetrack, and, and when the bike, you know, cruises to a stop, they have natural sound, and you hear the gearbox like sort of coming into a stop there, and then the guy's wearing, you know, full coverage leathers with knee pucks. When's the last time you saw that, mm -hmm. you know, in a Harley commercial thing, right? Right. And so, you know, when I'm watching the brand, it's interesting because, you know, when I work for uh, Polaris on the Victory and Indian brands, there are, like, legal uh, rules for, for how you can shoot a video. So I can't show a cruiser doing a wheelie going down the street. I can't, I can't show a bike that has, uh, um, you know, both of its tires off the ground. I can't, uh, that the rider should have both hands on the handlebar at all times. So when you go back and you watch the, the Harley video, there's clips with street legal bikes that were not developed to go off-road that have been clearly modified that are ripping up some Hugo Moto-looking sportster, ripping up, you know, a hill climb event. There's a shot of a guy riding past the camera, and both his arms are, are off the handlebars as he's silhouettes in, in front of the sun. That sort of stuff would never pass muster at, at Polaris uh, years ago. And there's a general, you know, unsquinching, uh, unpuckering of the industry that is very welcome because, um, you know, you can have, the whole point of this thing is supposed to be fun. And uh, and that's that's what we captured. You know, the first time you were a little kid and you, you, you rode your bicycle without, without your hands on the handlebars, I mean, it was
but the fact that it's relating to some to the reality of how we're living our lives now, uh, and and that and that that sense of more freedom as they they clearly Harley desperately wants to own the word freedom, but they can't. You can't. <laughs> this is America. You can't do that. But they really want to attach that to their brand. Uh, there's nothing that makes riding a Harley more or less freeing than riding a Honda or riding a Yamaha. But but they really want that. So so promising more freedom in an age of uh, increased uh, digital constriction is uh, is an appealing position for them. So. So that's, I mean, seeing all those little clues, you can watch the video once and really not get it. But as you guys said, man, you watch it a few times and you start picking up on all these little things. Uh, and it, that's what I'm saying. Is that's, that's why it's an important announcement. So, Robert, I trust me, they're not paying me. Harley guys have probably had a target on my back for a long time. <laughs> uh, wait, 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 uh, what do you, when do you think the target was the, was the largest? When was the target? Oh, when, when we introduced the Indian motorcycle in such a compelling way that Harley had zero way of of saying that's a load of crap. The only thing they could say is they, they've been a continuously operating brand, uh, and they could poke at the fact that, that Indian had, as a brand, had gone dark. Um, but I guarantee you, when we announced that, that we, that Polaris had acquired the Indian motorcycle brand, that was on, um, I think we did that on a Friday. And we did it on a Friday on purpose just to jack with people in Milwaukee because all of a sudden they were going to have a crappy weekend thinking about this stuff. And a bunch of meetings on Monday were going to be canceled, right? So, so they could deal with it. And then, then we, we introduced the Indian series in Sturgis at the world's biggest motorcycle rally, which was started by an Indian motorcycle dealer. And we, and we, uh, perched the new motorcycles on the top of the Sturgis Motorcycle Museum, not just because it was the tallest building in town, but because that's the museum. So here we are reclaiming our history, literally putting the bikes on, on the roof of the museum. Uh, and at that point, it was like those sorts of compelling, interesting ideas um, that our team had a part in. I mean, that that sort of thing is, is what makes other brands realize, oh man, that's this is going to be tough to, you can't just, you know, ignore it. So, Robert, moving away from the video a little bit and the technology, you uh, I was reading one of your blogs, and you said something interesting in it. You said that one of the big challenges for our industry, uh, regardless of the brand, is that dealerships lag behind current retail trends and methods. And I was wondering if you could elaborate more about that. Um, John and I sitting here in this dealership, I, I'm most interested in being progressive as possible. What did you mean that we're lagging behind current trends and methods? The, the, the stereotype of the motorcycle dealership is, you know, you walk in, um, there might be a receptionist that says hello, uh, might not be, um, and you're looking at a sea of headlights and handlebars. And if I were to walk into a you know, whatever, uh, say a, a Japanese bike dealership. If you weren't an educated rider and you walked in and you see the headlight and handlebar for, for you know, the uh, the smallest Suzuki Cruiser they sell, TU250 or something like that, and then it's parked next to, you know, a Honda 1800, fundamentally, they look the same. And one's a little bit bigger, you know what I mean? It's it's really hard to, to walk into a motorcycle dealership without having an idea of what you want. 
and and parse that through and, and figure it out. On the retail side of things, sales training is something that many uh, brands have tried, and there's such a huge turnover rate at dealerships, at motorcycle dealerships, um, that you go in, you, you train a bunch of um, generally guys, but you train a bunch of salespeople, and uh, six months later, you know, all of them, if not most of them, are, are gone and, you know, moved on to the next career because they're just not making enough money there or the season changed and the dealership laid off a bunch of people. And so um, what ends up happening is uh, there's not that energy and excitement at the dealer level because it's just so hard to parse through. So when you look at going into an Apple store, that's a fundamentally different experience than walking into, a, you know, uh, the average motorcycle shop. And that's how people want to buy stuff now. When you look at how Tesla is selling, you know, expensive uh, electric cars, that's a fundamentally different way of selling a transportation tool. Forgive me, Robert. And, I, uh, not, and frankly, power sports has not kept up. I'm not sure I'm understanding. What's the difference, the fundamental difference between an Apple experience and a Harley-Davidson or a Kawasaki dealership? What, what's the fundamental difference? I, I believe it boils down into uh, direct customer service and interaction. I've been to, and this is this is a blanket statement. So you know, some motorcycle shops are unbelievable, but I have absolutely walked into motorcycle dealerships and not been greeted. I'm walking around wearing decent-looking clothes. I might even have like uh, you know a pair of boots that are clear that I have a shifter scuff on the left side, and it's like, well, there's a clue that person's a rider, right? And have not been asked. Can I help you? What are you looking for? What do you ride? It, and that kind of thing. There's a, a, um, a systemic laziness um, that has happened in many retail environments, not just motorcycling. I think he's, ta I think he's talking about you, Mark. I think he's talking about you when he talks about the systemic laziness. Is that right? Yeah. See, were you, were you referring says, yeah. to me about that, Robert? Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> that, you know, when you walk into an Apple store, I guarantee if you're an employee, you, you could go experiment with this. Go get a job at the Apple store and be the worst employee, be the last one to greet anybody, be slow to respond. You're not going to have a job there very long. And, uh, and that is because if you don't go in, answer questions, um, you know, uh, have a sense of attack on retail uh, to go, you know, answer, figure it out you know, and close the deal and get them out, then, uh, then you're just not, it's not built for that modern thing. The, the challenge is, is like every, it's, the phone is like a utility now, right? Everyone has one, everyone kind of needs one. Uh, motorcycling, we have to do a better job of selling the category, and you guys have probably been around dealerships where, where people don't want to talk to newbie riders because they're like, oh, yeah, i got to tell them about MSF or, you know, here we are talking about these, you know, a Yamaha TW200 and, I'm, you know, I'm not going to make any commission on that, so I'm not going to give them much time. It's a problem. It's a major problem. So you've, you've gotta, we've got to reinvent uh, how we do that. And there's a thing in marketing, the sales funnel, where the further down into the funnel they are, the, the closer they are to, to retailing. And we, as manufacturers, we have to do a better job of selling the category of motorcycling and pull them deeper into the funnel before they ever even walk into 
the dealership. Nobody walks into, a, or few people walk into an iPhone store and go like, oh, here you guys sell phones, maybe? You know, they have an idea of what a freaking iPhone is and, and what it can offer you. Uh, whereas in motorcycling, we're, we're failing to sell the, sell the category uh, and, and deliver retail customers further down the sales funnel. Interesting. That's, hmm. I mean, that could be a podcast right in itself right there. Yeah, it really Comparisons. Could be. <clears throat> maybe maybe you should write a, a a blog specifically on that, Robert. You know how many consultants are pissed off at me because I'm giving away stuff for free. <laughs> for, yeah, I mean it's like, but but the the truth of it is is that motorcycling has motorcycling has been my life for 25 years, right? It's what I love to do. It's paid for my house. It's paid for you know vacations. It's paid for um, you know the the stuff I love to do, and. Um, the, the reward of the stuff is great. The true reward in a life is the friends that you make. And the friends I've made through motorcycling are amazing. Just phenomenal people. And not everyone's a super diehard motorcyclist, but when you have the common language of, of, of sitting on an engine with two wheels and riding through the movie, not just watching the movie, but being in the freaking movie, um, and you share that with somebody else, uh, that right there is, is immediately a person that I'm going to be more interested in because they're not cocooned in their lives. They, they accept some level of risk versus reward, and, and that makes them interesting. And uh, so when you see an industry like this going through a level of malaise and not being innovative and not keeping up with retail trends and... Uh, uh, and just relying on flashy new product as a reason to pay attention rather than elevating the category, it gets frustrating enough where I felt like, all right, you know, it's time to do something about it. I could I could quit right now and just enjoy the bikes I have and the life I have and, you know, go be a stock boy at, uh, at Costco or something like that. And um, there would probably be a few people who would be happy for that. But the, uh, <laughs> uh, I think that the, the truth is, is that this, this life has given me such a great reward, and I just I, I hope that other people understand that motorcycling is not just adding a thing into your garage; it's adding an element to your life that I really personally believe that there's there is few other things that can be as approachable and uh, and as life changing and life affirming as having a motorcycle in your collection of stuff. Amen on that. Amen. Well, Robert, we have uh, burned through some time. Uh, I know you're a busy guy. You are all over the place, and uh, and people are, are certainly asking to, to speak with you. So um, we'll respect that, and uh, um, we'd encourage people to check out your website. If you haven't, if you're interested, um, that's cer- certainly a, uh, that moto giveashift.com. That's give a shift, Mark. With an F, with an F. With an F as in Frank, yes. Uh, check that out. That's actually really kind of a cool, cool idea. Um, any, anything on your end, Robert, that you want to uh, let our listeners know before we sign off? Well, I would, I would speak directly to people who have motorcycle licenses. And here's a simple challenge: is just uh, be the cool friend and bring bring somebody who's on the edge of motorcycling into a dealership. If even if it's a sucky dealership, bring them in. Be their friend. Be their uh, counsel on motorcycling. Don't try and upsell somebody on something that they 
don't need that's fast or you know that's flashy or expensive or whatever. But if you just introduce, if each one of us as a licensed motorcyclist were to bring one other person into motorcycling a year, that would fundamentally change our metrics, totally change this industry, and and there wouldn't be this like sort of sense of crisis. I agree. But we can be our own best ambassadors, and we have to get evangelical about what motorcycling can bring into life. If we all did that, then uh, we'll be seeing a lot more two-wheelers out on the road. Good advice. Yeah, indeed. Well, Robert, uh, we will sign off here. We appreciate your time so much, and uh, we would love to uh, circle back at some point in time when some of this product comes out and uh, and get your thoughts on the specs and, and uh, what's out there in, in the public domain. If I'm not riding one, I'll be on the phone with you, no problem. We appreciate that, Robert. Robert, thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Bars podcast, sponsored by Wilkins Harley-Davidson. Stay tuned for our next exciting podcast. Check out additional information on WilkinsHarley.com.